Today's show is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's tryexpressvpn.com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Visit tryexpressvpn.com slash space to learn more. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9... Ignition sequence start. Space Nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space Nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello once again and thank you for joining us on the Space Nuts podcast, episode 154. My name is Andrew Dunkley and with me as always, Professor Fred Watson. Hi, Fred. Hi, Andrew. I know you're not feeling very well, so I won't say how are you. I'll just say I hope you're feeling better. Yeah, I've got a dose of um, whatever's going around at the moment. It's the beginning <clears throat> It's the beginning of uh, winter, so not that you'd notice with the mid-20s temperatures we're getting here at the moment, but, uh, yeah, it's going around and somebody threw it at me and uh, my body never rejects an offer. So <laughs> thanks for that. I don't know where I got it from, but anyway, hopefully that'll just see me through the season. After this. Uh, Now, we've got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about yet another discovery that's been announced uh, involving that flyby on New Year's Day of Ultima Thule. Uh, They've found that it's a bit of an odd bod. Uh, We've we've talked about how strange it is before because of the two flat surfaces that have um, sort of melded together. But there's more to it than that. Uh, The world's richest man has unveiled his vision for humanity in space and on Earth. He's got some wild ideas, but he's rich enough to pull them off, I reckon. And a couple of questions about uh, chickens, eggs and cosmic background radiation. That sounds like a microwave dinner to me. (laughs) So so we'll get into those a little later. But first, Fred, um, what's going on with Ultima Thule or Thule, depending on which side of the uh, equator you're on? Well, while you're microwaving, you might put a couple of pancakes in because that's what Ultima Thule looks like. <laughs> Indeed, yes. We, we did talk about that once before, but they've, um, uh, they've, they've found something else that's interesting about that's it. That's right. So, um, so the this... fact that it's an absolutely boring rock. No, yes, I'm kidding. Yes, completely boring, um, which is quite a discovery, really. Um, well, the reason why we're talking about this is that um, the, the project uh, – the, the New Horizons project, which of course flew by uh, flew by Ultima Thule at the beginning of the year, uh, has the, the scientists involved in the study have basically just published their first kind of learned uh, study of the results that they've got back from Ultima Thule. So um, that's why it's in the news again. Um, so basically, what they're trying to do is take the you know, take the um, the data that have come back so far, and it's more than we knew about at the beginning of the year. They've got much more detailed imagery and, um, and you know, thermometry and all of that sort of stuff. Um, they've taken all that and they've done a kind of analysis of what it's like, uh, which they've reported um, in the learned press, what we call the literature. Uh, the lead, I think the lead scientist is John Spencer, who's uh, one of the colleagues of Alan Stern, who is the, the project leader for, for New Horizons. Uh, um, Alan, I don't think he's there anymore, but he used to be at the Southwest Research Institute in Boulder, Colorado, which is really the center for this kind of study. Uh, so the, the outcome is, is exactly as you've said. Um, 
Ultima Thule is totally boring. But that in itself is really interesting, if I can put those two contradictory ideas together. Because um, what makes it boring is its, its surface, which is very, very bland. It's not, as everybody would have expected, peppered, peppered with craters, even though... These two, these this object, and really it's two objects joined together. It's like the gingerbread man model that that you invented back in January, yes. Andrew. So it's two <laughs> <Was> things. <that me? laughs> it was you, yes. A head and a body uh, joined together like a gingerbread man. Um, so two separate entities that have come together, mm. but they're they're almost featureless. They they show no sign of cratering, at least not obvious cratering. And even though these objects are thought to be pretty well the edge of the solar system and probably largely unchanged since the solar system was born 4.6 billion years ago, um, what you expect with an old object like that, as you and I talk about many times, you expect an old surface to be riddled with craters. Um, like the moons, you know, the southern part of the moon, the southern hemisphere of the moon is just peppered with craters. Mm. And that's telling you that that's a surface that has not had much change since the early history of the solar system, around about four billion years ago, when the inner solar system at least suffered something called the late heavy bombardment, when there was lots of debris flying around and many, many craters occurred. Ultima Thule shows no sign of that kind of activity, even though uh, we believe that it is uh, actually a relatively, well, a, a particularly ancient object, not just relatively. It's, it's you know, one of, the, one of the bits of raw material from which the solar system formed. And so the first question is, well, why is its surface like that? Why does it not have all these craters? And the answer seems to be that where it is, in the sort of outer part of the Kuiper Belt, the Kuiper Belt's one of a number of different groups of uh, icy asteroids way beyond the orbit of Neptune. You can identify several different groups of those, um, which are principally determined by the kind of orbits that these objects have. Uh, so um, uh, Ultima Thule is is definitely a Kuiper Belt object. In fact, I think it's it's part of what's known as the cold classical Kuiper Belt. Um, it's cold in a dynamic sense, I guess, because um, uh, that means it's not its orbits aren't totally chaotic. The, or, uh, the the orbits are relatively circular and pretty well spaced out. And classical is because it was exactly what um, uh, Gerard Kuiper and his colleague. Um, I've forgotten his name. I was going to say Middlehurst, but it wasn't. Uh, um, Kuiper and anyway, the other guy who, who back in the uh, back in the 1950s postulated the idea of there being a uh, you know a belt of icy, icy asteroids way way out uh, beyond the orbit of Neptune. Um, I'm really annoyed. I can't remember his name because because I've got a trick for remembering that name, but I've forgotten the trick. <laughs> I, that 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 takes me back to school with all the silly rhymes I used to try and remember yeah. so that I could answer questions because I couldn't remember anything. Um, I think it was Edgeworth. I think that was his name. <laughs> I think his name was Edgeworth. Anyway, it's something like that. So um, the the Kuiper Belt uh, is. Um, uh, you know, that's that's where Ultima Thule is. And the point that I was trying to get to before I went off on a totally random <laughs> stroll through memory lane there, or lack of memory lane, uh, is uh, the, the point I want to make is that out there, there are very few objects. It's a very rarefied 
part of the solar system. The further out you get, the less stuff there is. And it was Edgeworth. Uh, I just checked. Oh, thank you. Thank you. So my my um, my ruse for remembering it worked in the end. Um, so the, the, the Kuiper Belt is, you know, not has not had that many collisions. And the kind of pristine surface of Ultima Thule is living proof of that, because for an old surface like that, you'd expect it to be completely beaten up. Mm. Um, as indeed, as exactly as uh, Professor Spencer said, the, the lead, you know, the lead um, art, uh, author of this paper. But um, what is also interesting is that it's got sort of lumps in it. Um, it, remember Ultima Thule, it's about 300 kilometres, if I remember rightly, across. It's a tiny object, you know, when you consider that it was discovered from Earth, or at least from Earth orbit by the Hubble Space Telescope. But it, it's, um, it looks as though it's, uh, it's been put together from smaller lumps. Um, and as, they, as the authors say, um, you get the idea, this is Spencer again, you get the idea that it's built of different pieces. They're sort of subunits of about five kilometres across. And uh, they've counted eight of them on that bigger half of the, um, of the, 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 the two lobes, the larger lobe. Um, so one of Spencer's colleagues is quoted as saying, uh, it looks like monkey bread. And I don't know what monkey bread is. I don't, I don't either. I'd never heard that term before. But I think, right. I think it's like a conglomeration of lumps that are put together to create it's, a loaf. Exactly. It says it's a pastry-like snack in which balls of dough are baked together in a single pan, fusing into a lumpy loaf, which actually sounds pretty good to me. I like that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah so, you know, this, this um, fitting together of these different lumps uh, is a really interesting aspect of it. And... Um, so, so you know, could what, that could that be sort of um, like a very early formation scenario, like the, the like the way other bodies are created, like planets and things like that? Exactly, that's right. That's exactly what they're speculating. Ah. So, so um, what uh, Professor Spencer has speculated about is that maybe these these lumps. Um, of material were relatively soft to start with and and as he says sort of smushed into each other as they came together i'm not sure what the definition of smushed is but it does kind of sound like the right word yeah so um that's uh you know perhaps the the most interesting aspect of this object that you, it looks as though you can see the lumps from which it was made and that's always um of interest in very remote and ancient solar system objects like that mm. and just to, to to tie up the loose end the other thing is there's no sign of any kind of gases venting out from its uh, surface there's no sign of an atmosphere and so far there are no signs of any moons uh, for 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 Ultima Thule, um, although they're still analysing the data, apparently they're still kind of looking for uh, any sign of moons because the high resolution data are still coming in. So it's it's interesting but boring. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is though because it's it's two objects that are fused together now that seem to be made up of other objects that have fused together long yeah. before. They're yep. flat. They're craterless. Yep. They're moonless. Um, and and they have very good traffic control out there. Very much so. That's so, right. Because they're not bumping yeah. into each other. Indeed, that's exactly right. Um, we expect more results to come out a bit later in the year, maybe around August or September. So it's a 
you know, as usual, it's a case of watch this space. But um, I think for all it's boring, I think that's really interesting. Very, very interesting. And we'll hear more about Ultima uh, Tule in the not-too-distant future as they crunch the numbers because I, I can't remember what the figure was, but the amount of data that came down was extraordinary. <laughs> and, that's right. Um, yeah, they had to sort of fit it into an old, um, you know, dial-up modem to... <laughs> To get it to more or less, uh, that's right. Yeah, amazing. You're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Now let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, ExpressVPN, rated number one by Tech Radar. Uh, this is the one I use. I've been using it for a couple of years, and I love it. When I joined ExpressVPN, they were, they were brand new, uh, new to the market. But uh, I read a lot of reviews and did a lot of comparisons. And there was just something about their, their business model that I particularly liked. And a couple of years down the track, honestly, can't complain. Their interface is very easy to use. Their, their service is second to none. Uh, I've had to contact them a couple of times about um, certain things that I wanted to do, and they were brilliant. So you may be wondering why I do need a VPN at all. It's all about privacy. Uh, do you really want big tech companies, governments and others knowing uh, what's going on with your online activity? Even if you're having nothing to hide, it just feels downright creepy. Uh, I think you'll agree. And governments are getting more and more interested in what you're doing every day. And so, yeah, protecting your privacy is what VPN is all about. And how often do you uh, run across websites that you want to get information from only to find that they're geo-blocked? This is becoming an increasing problem, but ExpressVPN solves that problem for you. Uh, now, if you go to our special URL, you'll see quite a list of things this service can help you with, things you may never have thought of before. As I say, it's the one I use, secure, fast, and it just works. Uh, so protect yourself online today and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com slash space. That's T-R-Y-E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash space for three months free with a one-year package. Try expressvpn.com slash space to learn more and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now... Back to the show. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, to the world's richest man, and he has uh, just unveiled his vision for humanity, and he's talking about uh, venturing out into space for um, some very good reasons, to try and basically make Earth just a, a garden paradise for everybody and everything that lives on it, um, you know, take all the industry away, that kind of thing. Uh, he's He's got some bold visions and he's got the bank account to back it up. <laughs> Indeed he has. So, yeah, this was um, a presentation by... Uh, by Jeff Bezos, um, in uh, actually in in Washington D.C., uh, and and it's unusual because I think he's not particularly forthcoming when it comes to this kind of thing. Unlike, of course, Elon Musk, who gets in front of a crowd at any opportunity. Mm. Um, I think Jeff is a little bit more, uh, you know, slightly more reserved in putting out all his ideas. But he's apparently spoke for an hour at this event uh, with um, a really good outline of what he has in mind 
first of all, for his rocket company, which is Blue Origin, um, and but more especially his really you know big picture vision for the longer term future of humankind in space. And that's the bit that really uh, interests me because. <laughs> For what mine is worth, and it's not worth much, but the ideas that I've sort of tried to think about as to where we might be in a hundred or a couple of hundred years' time are very similar to what Jeff Bezos is suggesting, but quite different from what Elon Musk is suggesting. Mm. So, you know, it's um, it, it's nice to find uh, the kind of things that I've been thinking about uh, clearly not so uh, off the wall as I thought they were, because I thought I was losing my mind at one stage. Anyway, so, okay, so the first aspect is uh, to unveil his, uh, his moon lander, which strangely is called Blue Moon. Everything in Jeff's company is blue. Uh, the Blue Origin is the company, and you probably know that um, his, his company is engaged in developing space tourism uh, in a similar way to... Uh, Richard Branson, except that rather than using a kind of aviation type mothership to launch a rocket plane, Jeff's a straightforward up and down flights to the edge of space. And he's had many tests which have done very well. He's also, like um, Elon Musk, perfected the technique of la landing booster rockets on their on their backside uh, vertically uh, and reusing them, which is, you know, a fantastic step forward. Both those entrepreneurs have got to be warmly congratulated for achieving mm. that because uh, it, it really will make a difference in the cost of spaceflight. So Jeff unveiled his uh, vision for, for going to the moon and maybe for setting up uh, a moon base there, which of course ties in with very much with NASA's vision, and no doubt Jeff's company will be one of the uh, one of the uh, contributors to that, probably one of the contractors. Um, I think he's already uh, got actually a NASA one of NASA's lunar contracts for for that kind of uh, that kind of work, the multi-stage lunar lander. Um, however, what really captured my imagination about this uh, about this presentation is kind of what you alluded to at the beginning the idea that you know our planet um is look is the perfect world for us because we, we evolved on it uh but it does have um aspects of it which uh which are uncomfortable we have not looked after it we've made it an industrialized uh world in many areas it's a lot better now i can tell you that it was when what was when i grew up when the industrial revolution was still going on i grew up surrounded by factory chimneys and um, you know smoke i thought all stonework was black i didn't realize stone actually had different colors mm. uh, but um so he's he's focused on that and said wouldn't it be great to get rid of all that and just make the earth um, you know the kind of place where uh, we can we can all enjoy the the kind of environment that we're really supposed to have, and the way he's suggesting we do that is to ship off a lot of the industry into space, and that ties in with things like asteroid mining, uh, the idea of mining minerals and uh, metals and also rocket fuel in the form of water, which you dissociate into hydrogen and oxygen from asteroids and, and not bringing it back to Earth. You actually do all your, um, your 3D printing and all your fabrication up in space. And he envisages um, something that, uh, that, that these are things called uh, O'Neill cylinders. And the idea came from actually from a a novel, in fact, uh, the, written by a professor of, uh, of physics, I think, 
at Princeton University, Gerard O'Neill, who suggested having these free, you know, basically uh, orbiting or certainly free floating in space, cylindrical space colonies. Uh, where you build the thing and then you live on it. Mm. Um, it's a little bit like what I was thinking of, and I gave a presentation of uh, on this in um, uh, back there when I was in Kuala Lumpur a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I, I was thinking of what are called ring worlds, which are a bit like, do you remember that video game called Halo? Oh, yeah, I love Everybody that. Everybody lived on the inside of a ring. Well, you can do that. Um, the, the physics works pretty well. Uh, it's just the engineering that's the drawback. And likewise with these O'Neill cylinders, which are, you know, similarly huge structures because it's the rotation that provides the gravity. And, and if you want, then what you can do is you build your factories there as well. And They, uh, you know, make, they actually portrayed stuff. that in the science fiction movie Interstellar where humans had to leave Earth because it was dying because of global warming. Same problems we we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And they had to... Um, solve the problem of gravity to get off the planet, which they yeah. did. Uh, yeah. And they lived on these ring worlds, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did see Interstellar, but it's quite a while ago, and, and, and things like that tend not to stick in my mind for very long these days. But um, I did like uh, I did like uh, Jeff Bezos's thinking. And he actually, uh, there's a quote from him um, that that really uh, uh, kind of went straight to the the, the heart of my uh, imagination uh, because he said, you know, okay, so his his vision is up to a million humans living in each cylinder, built from asteroid materials and other resources, and the climate control and all the rest of it, cities, farms, mountains, and beaches. What he said was, this is Maui on its best day all year long. Now oh. is one of my, what is Maui is one of my favourite places in the whole world. Haven't so, been to Maui. I've been to uh, the Big Island and to uh, Oahu, but uh, yeah, lovely place, lovely place. I also, um, uh, I think you mentioned it, but he's um, he's uh, unveiled a brand new engine. Yes, that's right. Yes, thank you for like for reminding ten thousand pounds of thrust. The B four and a half the BE seven is I think yeah, it's called the BE seven. That's right, and that's going to be the one that propels the. Um, it actually propels the uh, the, the lander. Um, so uh, yes, the BE seven, uh, which will will be you know what the the lunar lander is fitted with. I mean, four and a half tons of thrust, and it's not a big engine. It's really remarkable the engineering that's going into these things now. Yeah, it is. It is amazing, and and in time uh, the technology will get better and better, and we we will be able to do a lot more out of the Earth's atmosphere, and uh, manoeuvrability will improve. Uh, Time to travel to places will improve. Yep. Um, and his vision is uh, sort of spanning generations. I mean, he, he knows yes, right. that a lot yep. of what he's aiming to achieve, he won't be around to see. He's talking 100 years or more. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Um, it's Clearly, if you're going to build structures like that... Um, you know, we, we had the vision in, as you and I have spoken of many times in 2001, A Space Odyssey, of these uh, uh, um, ring-like space stations. And maybe for something relatively small like this 2001, A Space Odyssey version was, you could do that in 20 or 30 years. But the kind of things that Jeff is talking about, and certainly the things I was referring to in my talk, uh, in Kuala Lumpur are very much the uh, the long term vision, hundreds of years. Uh, but I, I tell you, I still think it's better than trying to colonise Mars. Yes.
Yes, we've um, discussed that before, and it's we have. probably, it's probably a, a, a bit of a um, pipe dream. But uh, I, I recently read a book by Kim Stanley Robinson, and it's the title is A Year 2413 or 2432. I can't remember. Um, but in that, they he, he designed a similar concept in terms of uh, rather than creating ring worlds, they were hollowing out asteroids and living in them and creating yeah. like um, terrariums. Uh, to, yes. to live in, so uh, similar concept. So, yeah, once again, sci-fi writers coming to the fore. Yes, as they always do, just like you. Well, I don't think any of my concepts will ever make it into space. I'll probably, probably just crash and burn. But, like, who knows? No, I do. Uh, no, I don't. I do like that, Doctor Fred Wilson. You've got in your he's book. A, he's a classy dude. <laughs> yeah. Okay, um, we will probably hear more from uh, the richest man in the world in the not too distant future as he unveils more and more of his uh, concepts. Jeff Bezos, uh, amazing man. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson, of course. Okay, we checked all four systems and team with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, a bit of a shout-out to the people who've uh, added their um, following of us to Patreon. The, the Patreon account is uh, is growing. Uh, we've got a few more people who um, have put their money where their ears are, which I, uh, I think is wonderful. So thank you so much for your support. Um, and if you want to uh, go to our Patreon account, it's patreon.com slash space nuts. I, I can't even remember. But, um, yeah, look it up if you're interested in contributing to the program. Uh, we are also on YouTube, so you can listen to uh, the latest uh, edition of Space Nuts on YouTube or you can listen to back episodes uh, via our YouTube uh, channel. And we are now on Instagram, or our parent company is Bytes.com, which is the organisation that looks after our podcast and uh, a bunch of others, uh, is on Instagram. So uh, if you're an Instagram user, um, look up Bytes, B-I-T-E-S-Z, and um, add that one to your uh, uh, following, following list. It's following on Instagram, isn't it? or Insta, as the kids call it. So, uh, yeah, Bytes.com is the name of our parent organisation, um, and Hugh does a fabulous job piecing all the audio together and distributing it and getting it out, and he, he does a, a, a masterful job. He's really good. Now, Fred, we have uh, some questions. This one comes from... Uh, now, who are we going to talk about first? Which one were we going with? Uh, we the chicken and the egg theory. Now, this the comes one. from Marn. Now, I'm not sure if it's Marn England or Marn from England, so we're just going to call him or her Marn. <laughs> now, this is a chicken and the egg question. If most galaxies have at their centres a supermassive black hole, what came first, the galaxy or the black hole? Great question. <laughs> great question. It is a great question, and it's great because we don't know the answer to it. <laughs> um, it's, uh, you know... the. I guess the thinking uh, maybe five years ago or so was that, yes, you had to decide. One of them came first. Did you have a galaxy and then it evolved a black hole at the, um, at the middle and which, or a supermassive black hole at the middle? Or did you have um, the black hole and the galaxy formed around it? And I think the current thinking is um, an amalgam of both, that basically they, they form together. Uh, that you wind, you start off with, uh, a, you know, a, basically a cloud of hydrogen, which is what galaxies start from, and star formation takes place within that cloud. Its uh, rotation flattens it down to make a, 
are like a spiral uh, spiral galaxy but at the same time you are you're forming black holes in quite large numbers because the, the the very earliest stars to form are the most massive ones. They're very, very massive. Probably the first stars were more than 100 times the mass of the sun. And they've got very short lives. They burn out very quickly. Uh, they're incredibly bright. Uh, they burn their hydrogen fuel quickly. They may, might not last more than 10 million years or so, which is a blink of an eye in cosmic time. Um, and then they turn into a supernova. And the because they're so massive, uh, the remnant of that supernova is not, or the remnant of the core of the star is not a neutron star. It just collapses straight down to a black hole. So you will wind up with the center of this cloud of star forming with a lot of black holes there. They are interacting gravitationally. And it seems very likely that early in the history of the universe, they will be coalescing like man, merging in the same way that we've now been able to detect black holes merging with the gravitational wave detector. Mm. But in the early universe, that was a frantic process with these mergers taking place, particularly in the cores of the baby galaxies. And so what's likely is that the process, the two processes of the formation of a galaxy and the formation of the supermassive black hole basically went on concurrently. Um, and uh, over time, because most galaxies are, you know, 10 billion years old or more, uh, what we're now seeing, particularly in the nearby universe, which is where all the elderly galaxies are, uh, we're seeing pretty well old galaxies having a supermassive black hole at the middle. And it looks as though the black hole has grown with the galaxy. That's the, the bottom line. So we're saying they form together? Yes, that's the answer. So as far as we know. It didn't, there wasn't a first, there was a, just, it all happened at once. Kind yes, of I think that's right. Yeah. Okay. So and it's not a chicken somewhere. and an egg. It's just a... <laughs> it's an know. embryo. Yes, that's what, that's what it is. Yes. All right. But hopefully... The yolk's on you. Oh, dear, oh, dear. <laughs> All right. Well, Thank you, give... Man, for your question. Hopefully that answers it. Um, one nor the other were first. It seems that we think at this point it all happened at once. Now we move on to our next question. This one comes from Andrew Mitchell and he says, I hope you're doing well on this election day. He must have written this last Saturday because we had a federal election. Did you did you get your democracy sausage? One of, for those who aren't aware, one of the traditions in Australia on election day is to have a barbecue or a sausage sizzle. And um, no, the answer is no, I did not get a democracy sausage. They didn't have a barbecue at the polling booth that I went to. But um, it was uh, it was an interesting weekend. I don't think things unfolded anywhere near what most people expected. It was uh, it was fascinating. I spent all Saturday night watching it. I'm a bit of a geek like that. Anyway, Andrew's question is: My boy is doing Year Eleven physics, and we've had some interesting chats about the universe. He just asked me if we can detect the cosmic microwave background getting redshifted. That is between our earliest observations and now, have we noticed if, if the cosmic uh, microwave background uh, microwaves arriving are slightly longer wavelengths? I suspect that the change over a human lifetime would be small so that we could not detect them, but I'm interested in, Mr. in Professor Fred's answer. So he's, he's got a bit of an idea of where he's headed with this one anyway. Is he on the right track? Yes, he's got the answer. Um, but uh, just to explain what the question's about. Um, okay, so we, 
uh, our universe started with a big flash called the Big Bang. Um, and, it, you know, if you look back far enough in in time by looking far enough out into space, you can still see it glowing. And that's what we mean by the cosmic microwave background radiation. It's a radiation which is now at microwave length, uh, wavelengths all over the sky. It's everywhere. And what it means, it, it corresponds to your, you're looking back to a time when the universe was not transparent. It was still glowing brightly from the Big Bang. In fact, it was glowing brightly 380,000 years after the Big Bang. It was still very much a luminous object. So what we do with the... Uh, with the microwave telescopes that can sense this, you look um, basically out with the most high sensitive equipment you've got and you see that all over the sky there is this this radiation background which started its journey 13.8 billion years ago um, as visible light. So to get from being visible light to microwaves, it's been stretched by the expansion of the universe. And in fact, that gives you the clue to the answer to the question, because the universe, that, that radiation that we're seeing uh, left its source 13.8 billion years ago. It's been stretched by a factor roughly of 1,000. It's a little bit more than that. But for the sake of argument, we can say it's been stretched by 1,000 from visible light to microwave radiation. So if on average, if, it, if by now it's been stretched a thousand times, you can say that on average um, over the last 13.8 um, billion years, it's been stretched by 13.8 uh, million times per year. Uh, sorry, no, it's been stretched by <laughs> one 13.8 million per year. That's the, what I'm oh, trying okay. to say. Okay, yeah, I see. So, Every year, its stretch is very, very small. And, uh, you know, it's, it's now rather more than 50 years since we detected the cosmic microwave background radiation. Uh, so you're still talking about uh, one part in, you know, maybe one part in a million or something, one part in 500,000 of stretching that you're trying to detect. And because that radiation is what's called a black body spectrum, it's a rather smooth uh, spectrum. If you if you look at the way the the light intensity changes from from violet to red or through the microwave spectrum, uh, it's quite smooth. And and a, a change of you know of the order of a few hundred thousandths, one in a few hundred thousand, is not possible to detect. So the answer is no. We we can't detect it. But it is a really really good question. And you know, hats off to your uh, year eleven son uh, for actually. Uh, actually, um, you tackling know, physics at high school. Though, I think that's yeah. remarkable. Well, but the question itself is, uh, yeah, it's a very, very interesting one. Yes, indeed. Uh, well asked and well answered, I might say, Fred. And no. um, you put those <laughs> two questions off. together and you get a TV dinner. <laughs> Which itself has been microwave. Indeed. It's the only yes. way. Um, well, that's just about it. Thanks to uh, everyone who put their questions in. We're working our way through them, and we do appreciate your feedback and your questions and your support, and it's always uh, wonderful to uh, to be able to uh, help you out with your questions. It's um, uh, become a sort of a normal part of our weekly presentation now, and um, because if we're not telling you what you want to know, then we're barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> and, Fred, as always, it's great fun. Thank you so much. 
It's a pleasure, Andrew. Uh, it's always good to talk, and I look forward to speaking next week. Indeed. Fred Watson. And uh, we'll be back next week. And thank you again to everybody who's uh, following us on YouTube uh, and Instagram through bytes.com, B-I-T-E-S-Z, and uh, to uh, the 11 people now who are patrons of Space Nuts, and that uh, website is patreon.com slash Space Nuts. So I did get something right today. Uh, thank you again for uh, listening, and we'll be back again next week with another edition of Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com.